please turn with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I'm beginning a new series uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, for the next few weeks, probably go into the next few months, I should say. But uh, today, I just want to do a little bit of an introduction to the sermon, and then uh, next week, we'll start looking at those uh, Beatitudes. But it's the Sermon uh, of, on the Mount, the well-known sermon of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the longest a recorded sermon of his, and uh, this is something so marvelous, so thankful that we have it on record uh, for us to live and learn by. Some people take this sermon and look at it in the wrong way, and I'll mention some of those ways in a, in a while, but we want to get a right understanding of it, just like with Moses' sermons. We've been looking pre-Christmas at the sermons of Moses in Deuteronomy, well, now we turn from the Old Prophet, the Old Testament Prophet, to the New Testament Prophet, the Sermon of Christ. We're going to hear from the Prince of Preachers and uh, hear what his words are. You remember what Moses said about him, Deuteronomy 18, uh, 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, and to him shall ye hearken. That's the words of Moses. And then the Lord himself said, I, in the same chapter, verse 18, I will raise, up, raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. That's what he's doing. That's what Christ is doing here. He's speaking the words that the Father has given to him. And everyone is listening. And everyone should listen. Everyone is, people so quick, isn't it? People today, everyone has an opinion. Everyone wants to speak. But very few people want to stop and to listen, especially to what God says. Oh, if anyone we should listen to, if anyone, anyone before whom we should be quiet and take it in, it is what the Lord says. So here, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So the preacher is Jesus Christ. The time of when the sermon was delivered uh, is probably uh, not very early on in the ministry of Christ. When you read Matthew, perhaps you may think uh, it comes uh, very early on because it's in chapter 5, but Matthew doesn't deal with the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ uh, sequentially. Uh, so the, the time when this sermon was delivered was probably in Christ's second year of his ministry, and quite likely after he had chosen the twelve apostles. The setting is a mountain. He goes up into a mountain, and all the multitudes come unto him. That's significant, because you remember, when God gave the Ten Commandments, where did he give it? Where did he speak from? Mount Sinai. He spoke uh, the Ten Commandments. There God spoke to the people, and now here we see the Lord uh, speaking to the people from a mountain, perhaps also suggesting this is heavenly teaching. 
This is a word from above. This is a word from the Lord. Listen to it. This is God speaking. And then we see his preaching position. It's a, a seated one. That's uh, not something that we do today, unless a, a preacher is unwell. He sits, but uh, usually we stand. But in the times of the Jews, uh, it was common for them to, to sit and to teach uh, uh, seated. And that's what Christ is doing here. The congregation is the multitudes. Multitudes, thousands are following him. It was the time of his popularity and the time uh, when many uh, came to him, not only because of the miracles. Oh, yes, many, many people no doubt did follow him for the miracles, and some people followed him because he fed their stomachs and he gave them uh, uh, bread and fish to eat. But there were many who followed him because of his teaching. They had, there was something about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, today everyone wants a following, isn't it? But there are very few people who actually have something to offer. There are, very, there are many uh, people who, who, who purport to have something, to offer something, but they, they have nothing really. Think of uh, this person who's been in the news just recently. What's his name? Uh, T.B. Joshua. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about him. This Nigerian uh, past, uh, pastor, preacher, I don't know uh, what he was, but uh, thousands were following him. Hundreds went from other countries to, to join his uh, synagogue. And uh, he, be he became very famous. And he became very rich as well. But, the thi but he, what did he have? It was all a fake. It was all phony. It's all... And nothing. It was all a show. It was all manipulation on, on his part. That's what all uh, his people are saying now. Although not all his people, a number of those who have been involved in that group. It was miracles, they said. But he had nothing really. But Christ, he had something. He really had something. That's why the crowds went for him. That's why they want, no man speaks like this man. There's no one like him. There's something very, very different about this teacher compared to the scribes and the Pharisees. As you will see, he speaks as one who has authority. He knows what he's talking about. It's as if he's seen these things that he's talking about, these heavenly things. It's not just something that is a theory to him. He's talking with real persuasion and conviction about these things. As if he really, really knows. He's got something substantial. That drew the crowds, I'm sure, uh, to him. And uh, many uh, followed uh, after him. But look at verse 2. It says, His disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, uh, saying, Blessed are the poor and spirit. It seems almost superfluous, doesn't it, here, to say that Christ opened his mouth. Why do you need to say he opened uh, his mouth? Well, it's actually uh, Hebrewism. It's a he Hebrew idiomatic way of saying that he had, this is a message that he is not giving just impromptu, off the cuff. It's not just somebody asking him, oh, can you say a word in the synagogue as he did sometimes? And he, he stands up and speaks. No, this is suggesting when he says he opened his mouth, it's saying that uh, he's, this is a message that he has thought about. This is a message that he has considered. This is a message that he has prepared, and he's going, and he now uh, deliver it. It's not something off the cuff. 
but this is something that he has thought about and dwelt about. There's a purpose in him uh, giving this message. That's what's an idea behind it. Also, the suggestion here is that of authority. When he opened his mouth, he is speaking as one with authority, as one who knows what he is uh, talking about. He, you, as you read on, and you can please do read it in your own time, the whole sermon, uh, he often will say, ye have heard that it has been said of old time, but I say unto you. That's authority. Again and again he says, ye have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you uh, such and such. And then you look at uh, the, the end of the, of the sermon, the chap which goes all the way to chapter 7 and verse 28. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So that's suggested in these, this phrase, he opened not his mouth. The message, though, that he is delivering, well, who's it for? Is it for all the crowd? Is it for all this great congregation? Surely he's going to use the opportunity to speak to everyone now. What a crowd. This is a chance, Lord. Preach the gospel. Let them all hear. And he's going to do that. But the way in which he does it is perhaps different uh, not what we would be used to, uh, to doing, say, in a gospel service. The way he does it is he's actually directing his words uh, to his disciples. When his disciples, when he was seated and his disciples came unto him, he opened his mouth and he is directing uh, and, uh, his words specifically to the disciples who are in front of him the 12 apostles and the other disciples who uh, were there also following him at that time. His eye contact is with them. It's primarily on them that he is focused. But of course, everyone else is listening in. Everybody else can hear all these things, and that's his intention. It's, a, as it were, a, a teaching message going forth to the believers there, but it's not only for them. Yes, the Lord wants all the other listeners to also hear what he is saying, what he is teaching, because there are messages, there is important messages for them to also gain by listening. Here are critical lessons that even, even though they're in a sense eavesdropping on this message, they are going to be picking up critical things from here. Weighty lessons are coming out from the mouth of Christ to do with people's souls. And though it's directed uh, at the believers in front of him, it's also for those who are listening. Here are spiritual lessons, and that's so vital for them to pick these things up. So it's a, a teaching message, but at the same time, it's going to be of tremendous help to all those who are unbelievers uh, also. Now, friends, it's so vital, as I've said, that we get this sermon and approach it in the right way because so many like this sermon. They read it and they appreciate this sermon, but they take it in the wrong way. They look at it in the wrong way. There are some people who are saying, well, in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, Christ is telling us how to become a Christian. We could say, uh, firstly, this, is, this could be looked at as a two-point sermon. 
the first part, uh, verses 3 to 12, are the Beatitudes, the blessedness of a certain group of people. And that would be like a description of uh, Christians. And then the second part would be uh, the application, the conduct of the Christian. But there are some people who turn these things around. Uh, some people who say, well, uh, it's not it's not that this is a description of a believer. This is how you become a believer. These are the qualities you need to become. You need to change. You need to become poor in spirit. You need to become merciful. You need to become holy. And then God will accept you. And then, God, then you will be blessed. Wrong, says the Lord. That's not what he has in mind. You know, when, you're, when we studied RE at school, and maybe if you're studying RE at school uh, today, uh, this is what you're taught. They're, they say, well, they, they study the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, well, these are the sort of characteristics that people should have in order to be blessed by God, in order to be saved. But that's not what the message here is. The message here is, is, is the other way around. What Christ is saying in, in those Beatitudes, in those uh, 12, first 12 verses, this is a, what a Christian looks like. He's already poor in spirit. He's already a, a meek person to a degree. He's already pursuing after a righteous, upright life. This is the kind of person. All these qualities are, are in him. And then this is how he's going to conduct himself in life after he has believed. So it's not a way of salvation. It's, the, it's saying to them, this is a believer already, and this is how he is to live as a believer. Other people take this sermon on the mount and they, they say, oh well, we, we really like this teaching of Christ. We like what he is saying, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, be a peacemaker and all these other things. Oh, you know, do unto others what you'd have them do uh, to you. Blessed are uh, the poor in spirit. They would uh, so make it a natural thing. Blessed are the poor those who are really poor in, and less well-off in this life, they're the ones we should seek. They turn this message into a social message, into a social gospel. And they say this, the church should adopt this kind of message, and we should be those who are concerned for social justice and for those who are less well off for those who are poor and needy. This is the church's focus. This is why the church is in the world. We must be those who are concerned about the, the people, the needy in society. And they argue for this position. You see this now, sadly, especially in the Church of England. When you hear a sermon, it's very much along this kind of alliance, just the social gospel. And others will look at this sermon and say, well, here is pacifism. Here is an argument for us to cease from war and to pursue peace between nation and nation. People like Leo Tolstoy, who wrote uh, War and Peace, when he read and studied this sermon, this is the conclusion that he came to. I'm going to be a pacifist. This is what we must go for. Mahatma Gandhi, same thing. Uh, start, look at this thing, draw some of his, uh, his uh, ideas and his his ideology for, for pacifism from this kind of uh, teaching. But that's not what this sermon is all about. Yes, as a church, 
Yes, as Christians, we want to make an impact upon society. We want to help the needy. We do care about social justice. But that's not the main thing we are here for. That's not the thrust of our message as a church. This is a spiritual message. This is a message to people's hearts and lives. This is, uh, this is God working in our hearts, changing people's hearts, not just their outward uh, circumstances. And that's what we need to, re to remain, to keep in our minds also. Then there are also some uh, believing friends, uh, dispensational friends, uh, who uh, tell us also this Sermon on the Mount, this Sermon of Christ, has nothing to do with believers. So it's nothing to do with you if you are a Christian. It was meant only for the Jews. Their teaching uh, was along these lines. Christ came into the world, and he, was, he came primarily to set up his kingdom amongst the Jews, but the Jews rejected him. The Jews uh, didn't receive him. So what did he do? Well, he had to, like on the spur of the moment, resort to plan B. And he had to uh, then go to the cross. And then he had to uh, die. And he had to set up the church. The church is like a, an afterthought for Christ. Because the Jews didn't receive him. That's what they say. But in the future when Christ returns, then he will set up his kingdom physically on the earth. And then the Jews will come to him. And then during the reign of the millennium of a literal thousand years, this is not what we believe, but this is what they say. They say that during that 1,000 years, well, then this Sermon on the Mount will be applicable. Then the teaching will be applicable only during that time. But it's not for believers today. Friends, that's wrong. Because this Christ, how could Christ come and fail? That in itself which should ring the alarm bells, isn't it? Christ can never fail in his purposes. But uh, this sermon is very much for today. So let's think about how we may, for ourselves, how it may be helpful for us to look at it. Well, you'll notice as you read through this sermon that there's a very early emphasis in Christ's message on the law and on the keeping of the law. Chapter 5, verse 17, the Lord says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And then he goes on to say about those who break the commandments and teach others so, will be called least in the kingdom, but those who do and teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about a righteous life. A true believer must have a righteous life. The Lord is not negating the law. Uh, he is he's em em emphasizing it. It's still, uh, still valid for a person after they have believed. He goes on after that to talk about to expound the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And then the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And uh, then he goes on to talk about the laws, of, about vengeance and the treatment of 
uh, our enemies, how we deal with them. He's not negating the law of God that was given by Moses. He's uh, emphasizing it. He's, he's not like some people who say, oh, now we are under grace. We don't need to keep the law. We don't need that message. Now that we are under grace, now that we are saved, we are safe eternally. Yes, of, of course, we don't keep the law in order to be saved. But once we are saved, once we are true believers, then we have an obligation to still keep the law of God, to be serious about pleasing God. How do we please God? Do we just have a nebulous idea in our mind about pleasing God? No, we have, we have the Word of God. We have the law of God uh, to teach us, to direct us. So we cannot live as we like. Some, some uh, Christian teachers teach this. They say that the Ten Commandments are not relevant for us. The law of God is, is not relevant uh, for us. Christ says it is. Again and again, he says it is. Again, towards the end of uh, the sermon, chapter 7 and verse 23, uh, he says to those who are professing believers, and these are awful words, aren't they? Those who thought that they were believers, but they weren't, Look at verse 22. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And that word iniquity can also be translated lawlessness. Lawlessness. You who have been living without the law. You've had a name, a profession, but you've been living without obedience, without the law. And then he goes on to tell them the parable. Uh, and uh, in the parable, the wise man is the one who not only heard Christ's sayings, but he did them. And the foolish man is the one who heard Christ's sayings and did nothing about those sayings. He didn't act upon those sayings. And so his house fell. His house was unstable. His life was superficial. His life was lightweight. Because why? He didn't take seriously the keeping of the Lord's words. Obedience was not something important uh, to him. Oh, friends, what a lesson this is for us, isn't it? That we must check ourselves. I don't mean to speak in a harsh way, but it's so necessary for us to, to check ourselves because so much of what passes for Christianity today is superficial. It is lightweight. It is, doesn't get very far. It's shallow. It's artificial. There are shallow believers today. Why? Because uh, we are not keeping the Word of God. Compare ourselves with believers in the past. We mentioned a little bit about this in our Bible study uh, on Thursday. Oh, what a difference when we read the history of men and women who have believed on the Lord in the times past compared with the, the Christians of uh, today. Let me give you an example. You may have heard of uh, Oregon, the early church uh, father. Well, he came to know the Lord at a very young age. I think he was about, uh, well, below 17 when he, he came to, to Christ. But his father also was a good man. His father, uh, Leon, Leonidas, I think you, you pronounce it, uh, at one point 
Well, Leonidas uh, taught him the scriptures, uh, taught his son the scriptures, and uh, his son came to the faith. And then uh, when his father was imprisoned, what did Oregon do? Did he go to pieces? No, he tried to join his father in prison. And uh, the only, the, only uh, the way he, he couldn't do it was because his mother hid his clothes and so uh, uh, stopped him, uh, hindered him from joining his father in prison. Then he took up another route and he decided to write to his father. And what did he say? Oh, father, I miss you. He encouraged him. He said, father, stand strong, be constant, don't give up, don't give the faith. 17 years old he was when he wrote to his father and did these things. Oh, friends, hasn't that put us a little bit in the shade and make us think compared to such men and women of the past, women who went uh, to, uh, gave their lives up uh, for Christ, wouldn't deny Christ, so many of them. Well, one reason why really there is uh, so, so much superficiality we have to say is because we fail to take Christ seriously, the teachings of Christ seriously. We overemphasize grace. Oh, we must speak much about grace. Our whole gospel is a gospel of grace, but we mustn't do it, overemphasize it to the point where we neglect our duties and our responsibilities to the Lord. We are saved, we rejoice in Christ, we rejoice in our salvation, but then we stop there. We stop at that point. We come to a standstill there, perhaps, and then following that, there's little pursuit of sanctification and of holiness and of growing in the Lord and of going on and on in the Lord and, and maturing in the faith and going from young, from babes to young men to old men in the faith ever going on with the Lord, more zealous than we were before. We, we sort of come to a standstill. And it may be that one cause of that is because we are not acting on the Lord's words. Oh, friends, we are not taking, perhaps, obedience seriously. We don't hear much about that old word today, is it? Obedience to the Lord. We want to hear all the flowery things, all the nice things, we don't want to hear, this is what you must do. We often pray, maybe, with Paul, Lord, what must I do? And that's good. But we only perhaps pray in times when we may need to make big decisions, when we need, we're thinking about marriage, or we're thinking about moving home, or we're thinking about uh, changing jobs. And we must, at that time, lift up our eyes and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? But this must be our a constant attitude, not only in the big things, but in the daily things of life. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What do you want? How should I spend my time? How should I go about? How should I be? What do you want me to do? What's your approach to Bible reading, friends? When you read the, the scriptures and you ask the questions of the passage that you've read, do you perhaps only look for comfort? the promises and the blessings there and just pick up on those and home in on those. Well, do that by all means. You must do that. Embrace them. They're there. They're there for you if you're a believer. And take them as your own. But do you also uh, ask, uh, what, what is there for me to do? What duty is here for me as a believer to do? Is there something here for me to act upon? Some way in which I need to change my life? 
This is another question that we have to ask ourselves as we're reading uh, the scriptures. But I really uh, must uh, move on. And I, I just want to say before I close just a few things about the beatitude specifically. That's which is recorded in verses 3 to uh, 12. Uh, these eight uh, beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn and so on. The word blessed here means happy. Happy. Uh, supremely happy uh, are the poor in spirit. Supremely happy, Christ says, are they that mourn. Supremely happy are the meek. Oh, hold on a minute. Hang on a minute here. Yeah? That doesn't sound like happiness to me. That's not happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. That doesn't sound like a, 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 happy, a happy way of life. Maybe well and good for a previous generation, but for today's generation, for, for today's modern society, no, it, it's, it's out of sorts. It doesn't belong here. Happy are the assertive, for they will have their own way. Oh, happy are those who are super confident, who are self-confident. Blessed are they, we may say. That's what we need. Blessed are those who stand up for their rights and who won't allow other people to walk all over them. Blessed are these kind of people. Oh, friends, this is how the world thinks. Blessed are those who just indulge their lust and give in to their lust, whatever they may be. They'll be really happy, not withholding them, not, not, none of this holiness thing. Blessed are these kinds of people. Oh, friends, this is how the unbeliever thinks. This is how the world thinks. He looks at these and he says, no, 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 it's all wrong. But Christ proclaims, and he proclaims exuberantly to all those who are listening. He didn't mumble this. He proclaims it with a loud voice and blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy, most happy are those who mourn. Uh, uh, and uh, those who are meek, and those who, who long for righteousness and hunger and thirst after I, they, in the heaven's eyes, are the happiest people on earth. This is what Christ is saying. The world cannot understand it. The world says, you're misguided, you're foolish, this is outdated, this is not for today. You're unfortunate, you're, this is, you're wretched people, <laughs> if you believe like that. But the, the, the message from Christ the message from heaven, blessed are such a people who have these traits. Oh, friends, then we must say that these characteristics here are spiritual characteristics. They're the fruits of the new birth, the fruits of being born again, of coming to know the Lord, and, post, and of being converted to the Lord. These are not something that you will find naturally in a person but they are produced in a person as a result of a person believing in the Lord. The Holy Spirit produces these characteristics in a believer. Well, you may say, oh, I know such and such a person. I know so and so. They don't go to church, but they're a very kind person. They're a very nice person. They're a very gentle person. They don't have a, a bad bone in their body. They don't have a, she has a good heart, isn't it? We hear people say that. And she's not even a Christian. 
How come it's so? Well, friends, that's a very natural way. All of us are different. Some people are born naturally aggressive, naturally on the front foot. Others are a little bit more withdrawn. Others, some people are born kinder than others and more thoughtful, and they can see things that need to be done. They're more practically minded, and they know how to help others, where another uh, one standing next to them wouldn't have a clue. And it's, we're all different, just like we all look different, and we have uh, different uh, things about us, so also with our characteristics. We have these natural uh, characteristics, but they're purely natural. But these ones, which Christ is mentioning, they are spiritual characteristics, and they are only come as we come to know the Lord and are born again. So remember that. We'll, we'll look a little bit more in detail at that as we, uh, as we tackle these Beatitudes. But then uh, just another thing to say about these Beatitudes is that, all of, is that all Christians are to be like this. These are not traits that are specific only for an elite group of Christians, you know, or only a special group, those who have attained uh, a, a higher spiritual life, you know, the, the second blessing, as it were, or only they will have uh, these particular traits in them. No, this is for all believers. Every believer should have these traits. The Roman Catholic Church have, uh, are guilty of doing this. They, they separate the laity and they say, well, uh, we have a group called the saints, and uh, in this group are, are those uh, saints who have achieved some sort of heroic sanctity about them. They've gone the extra mile, and they're different. They're not on the same plane as, as those other believers who are lower down. They are higher up. They're the saints. So you, they elevate, uh, oh, here's Mother Teresa. We'll, we'll elevate her for her service to the poor, or Francis of Assisi for his remarkable simplicity and humility. And they elevate, and it's all wrong. Because these traits are to be found in all Christians, everyone who is a true believer. And then one final thing, uh, all these characteristics, all of them are to be found in every believer. So every believer is to be like this, but every believer is to have all of these. So you may have one, in, probably not in the same measure, one may be more prominent in you than another, but uh, every one of these uh, traits will be in a person. A, a true believer, a true Christian, how do you know them? Oh, they're hungering after righteousness. They want to be more holy. They're merciful. They're forgiving people. They're very uh, forbearing uh, with people. Oh, maybe they still need to develop it, but there is something there. All of these you'll see in some way or other. Uh, uh, some will be there to a greater measure uh, than others. But they're all interconnected with each other, and you can, they are not separate. Just like the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It's singular, the fruit of the Spirit. All those love, joy, peace, long-suffering are all uh, given to the believer. So also, these traits, all of them, friends, will be found in a true uh, Christian. Well, I close uh, with this word. May the Lord help us then to uh, be serious. Here is a word for us to hear, to receive, to rejoice in. And here is a word also for us to put into practice, to act upon. 
May the Lord help us and bless us as we continue looking at it in the coming weeks. Let's close by singing our final hymn, number 446. So let our lips and lives express 446. <laughs>